Luke chapter 12 will be the focus of our attention this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, or you got some sort of device that you can tap, flip, swipe on to get to Luke chapter 12, I hope you'll join me. In Luke chapter 12, we'll be picking up in verse 13 today as I share with you a message that I've titled, On Guard Against Greed. As we kind of get our, our, our minds focused on this idea of greed, I want to share with you a historical account from the year 1980, or, or excuse me, 1898. 1898 was the year in which a European heavyweight wrestler whose name was Yusuf the Turk, he came to the United States, and in his wrestling career to that point, he had been very successful. As a matter of fact, he had never been defeated, had this wrestler known as the Turk. And he held the European Heavyweight Championship. But he wanted more. And his great strength proved to be too much for his American opponents, just the way it had been for his European opponents. And one of those opponents even described the Turk with these words after losing to him in a wrestling match in New York City. This opponent said he was a modern Hercules and he knew how to apply his punishing strength as he was quick as a jungle cat and master of all holds. He came at me like a bull and he picked me up as if I was a kitten. Never before have I felt such terrible strength. Before I could give a wiggle or squirm, he dashed me down on the boards with terrific force, knocking all the strength and wits out of me. You can imagine what a horrific experience that might have been to be an opponent of Yusuf the Turk. Well, in that same year in which the Turk had come to America, he won the American Heavyweight Championship in Chicago, Illinois, by defeating the reigning champ whose name was Strangler Lewis. And the prize for that fight was $5,000, which was a lot of money at that time. Well, the Turk demanded that his money be paid in gold. And he stuffed that gold into his championship belt, which he then put on. And he boarded the first ship, the first one that was headed towards Europe. But the money mattered to him so much that he refused to take off his money championship belt until he was safe at home. And that money would prove to be a toll of tragedy in Yusuf the Turk's life. Because halfway across the Atlantic Ocean on July the 4th, 1898, the ship he was taking began to sink. And when the tragedy of that day was done, 600 passengers on that ship had drowned. And as passengers were being evacuated, some of the survivors recounted that Yusuf jumped overboard in hopes of reaching a nearby lifeboat. But when he landed in the water, he was dragged under by the weight of the gold that he held in his championship money belt. His golden belt had become a golden anchor and he drowned before the crew could get to him. You know, that great strong man who could take down anyone had an unguarded weakness. It was the weakness of greed. And when greed got hold of Yusuf the Turk, it literally dragged him to the bottom of the sea. If only he had been on guard against greed, his string of victories might have continued on when he arrived safe at last to his European homeland. But when greed consumed the Turk, it compensated him with destruction. And the destruction of greed is a danger to each and every one of us. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you are strong or weak, whether you are healthy or hungry, greed is the danger that lurks around the corner of every ungodly motive. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus warns the crowds as he warns all of us on this day to beware and be on guard against every form of greed. And in the events surrounding his instructions 
that I just mentioned to you and the parable of the rich fool that he gives thereafter, we find wise instructions for all of us to show us how we must be on guard against greed. So join me now in Luke's gospel, starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. And if you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand and we might honor together the reading of God's word. Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do? since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The word that's translated greed in this passage is literally a compound word. It's a combination of two other Greek words. One of those words means to have, and the other means more. So when Jesus commands us in verse 15 to beware and to be on guard against every form of greed, he's warning us about the danger of the mentality that always wants to have more. Greed is simply a desire and an eagerness to have more, an insatiable desire for more. And the greed, which says, I want to have more, is typically manifested in two different sort of ways. There's a greed that has, and then there's a greed that does not have. And, and the, the greed which says, ultimately, I have something, and I do not want to share that thing with others in need, is the sort of greed which comes across as selfishness in the possessions of an individual who will not share those with others. Whereas the greed that does not have is the sort of greed that longs for something that one does not have and begins to covet for that sort of thing, to desire that thing in the lives of others. So I see my neighbor has the newest and latest and greatest gadget, and that becomes for me a desire that I want the same thing that my neighbor has. And so the greedy person will either want to have more of his own possessions to himself or use of his own possessions such that he's become selfish and doesn't share or, or he's going to have that yearning, that desire that spends his time coveting for that which he does not have to the neglect of other mandates which God gives to us. So greed that is selfish is, is one type of greed whereas greed that does not have is another side side of sort of covetous greed and greed is ultimately a sneaky sort of danger as jesus draws out for us it creeps in when we do not expect it we must be aware we must be on guard against this deadly sin we must be watching for greed we must be prepared to fight it back when we see that it is invading our lives otherwise greed will silently slither into our lives and before we know it will be consumed by greed and we will be far from God. So when Jesus tells us to be aware and to be on guard against every form of greed, we should know that this is a sneaky villain he is warning us against that deserves our earnest attention and deserves our response when we detect that greed is at work. 
those words, on guard, remind me of the words which are used in the sport of fencing. Most of you have seen through the Olympics or through some other manner of events, those who are gathered together to spar in a fencing sort of event. And at the outset of a fencing match, the French words en garde are spoken to the opponent in a very phonetically similar sort of way to what it ultimately means in, in English, which is to be on your guard. Be ready. Get your defenses up. Be ready because I'm coming at you. And so... As, as we look at what Jesus is commanding us to do here in this passage today, to be on guard, we need to be prepared to be defensive against what he is warning us against, and it is greed. We must have our guards up and be ready to fight back this malicious danger. And so I want all of you to consider this question here today. Has greed gotten past your guard? Has greed gotten past your guard? And as you consider that question, I want to share with you from this passage five ways to know if greed has gotten past your guard. The first is this. Greed has gotten past your guard if you are ranking riches over relationships. Let me say that again. Greed has gotten past your guard if you are ranking relationships, if you're ranking riches over relationships. In verse 13 of this passage, a man speaks up in the crowd. And all we know about this man, apart from Jesus' response to him, is that he's one in the crowd who makes a pretty bold sort of demand of Jesus. And in this bold move, he ultimately kind of interrupts what Jesus has been preaching. And Jesus has been preaching a most important sort of message for all individuals. We took a look at that over the last couple of weeks where Jesus is ultimately warning those who are gathered around him about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's warning them about having this outside-only sort of religion. He's warning them about wearing costumes that make it look like I'm holy on the outside when in the reality is that I am filthy on the inside. And Jesus is ultimately teaching them about the dangers of heaven and hell. And how it's not good to fear man here on earth who can do nothing more than kill us. It is the right thing for us to do is to fear God who ultimately, after we've been destroyed, can cast us into hell. I mean, that's a pretty sincere, severe message that all people needed to hear. And yet as Jesus is preaching that message, this man speaks up and says, Jesus, take care of my need. Look, listen to what's going on in my life. And it's almost a a rude sort of encounter. It's as if this man says, I don't care how important these truths for everyone are. I have something that I want Jesus to do. This man is greedy for attention, having his own will done. He rips right into that important teaching on hypocrisy. And as he does so, we see that there's one relationship that's obviously out of whack right at the outset of this passage. And it's the relationship between this man who speaks up and the Lord Jesus. He runs all over Jesus' teaching with his own request. And his request has to deal with his personal inheritance. Now, presumably, this man's father had recently passed away. And the Old Testament law required that when a father passed away, if he had two sons, the oldest son would receive a double portion of his inheritance and the youngest son would receive a portion as well. And so you could think of it as the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son would receive one-third. Most often that happened kind of as a modern parallel as the older son being the executor of the state. And so he would take and divide the inheritance with his younger siblings. But for whatever reason, the division that would normally happen of the estate hasn't yet happened in this situation. And we're not told exactly why, but we could presume, perhaps, that the oldest brother was being greedy and he wasn't giving his youngest brother the share that was rightfully his. But it's not necessarily a negative sort of thing that's going on here. Perhaps this older son was still in mourning over his father's recent death and he just wasn't emotionally prepared to divide the estate at this point perhaps there are other factors we're not giving these circumstances we only know that this man demands of jesus a bold demand saying teacher tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me 
And so this kind of helps us to understand Jesus' response to this man in verse 14, where he says, man, a word of ultimately rebuke. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? This man obviously didn't want a fair judge. He obviously didn't want someone to fairly evaluate and to arbitrate and to decide between he and his brother. He wanted someone who would consent to a foregone conclusion. He didn't present the facts. He simply demanded consent to his preconceived verdict. And so you see this man was consumed with his problem. And he had come to try to get Jesus to solve his problem. But the problem with this problem was that there was no openness on his part to allow Jesus to search his own heart and to let him know if there was something within himself that needed to change. He simply wanted the problem fixed without confronting some deeper issues of sin in his life, which Jesus then continues to call out. And so already we see him ranking riches over relationships in particular with this relationship with Jesus. Jesus, for this man, was nothing more than a tool. And you know, that's a danger for many of us. The danger that we would prize our own riches of our, over our relationship with Jesus to the point where we would demand our way rather than seek his will. And we need to be on guard against greed in this sort of way. And I certainly hope that you have a regular habit of praying to God. But when you pray, this sort of thing can flesh itself, itself out in our prayers. And so when you pray, I want to know, are your requests to God focused primarily around getting your will done on earth with heaven as a tool? Or are they focused on getting God's will done on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus has already given some pretty stern warnings about prayer in that sort of way in Luke's gospel that we've looked at in depth. But there are so many times when, when we come to the Lord and we've got the same mentality as this man in this passage saying, Lord, here's the way to fix it, just fix it. When the reality may be what we need to do is yield ourselves to him and say, Lord, if there's something broken in me, then fix that. And if that becomes an agent for me to be a change which fixes this problem, then, Lord, your will is ultimately what I'm after. And so whose will are you after? If this man really wanted Jesus to be his judge or his arbitrator, he would have said, Lord, will you consider the merits of this situation? Will you consider my own heart to see if there's any wickedness in me in regard to this matter? Then will you give me your decision and I'll be ready to submit to that. That should be the characteristic sort of mentality of our prayers when we come to the Lord. You see, this man wanted Jesus to serve him, but he didn't want Jesus to save him. Now, Jesus has done every man a great service. He has died on the cross of Calvary to bear the penalty of your sins. Don't care who you are, don't care what kind of junk you've got in your life, don't care where you're coming from, Jesus has done you a great service. He's won the victory. He's conquered the grave so that you have the opportunity to have eternal life. But if you come to him only for the perks and not so that he can be your Lord, you are chasing an empty pursuit because all of the perks we have in Christ flow from the reality that he saves those who come to him by faith. And if he is not the king of your heart, then he will not be the servant of your desires. And seeking riches over true relationship with Jesus is a greedy and a grave pursuit. And greed destroys relationships. Not only is it a danger to this man's relationship with Jesus, but this man's desire for riches is obviously impacting other relationships in his life. Because in verse 13 He's asking Jesus to rebuke his own brother. He and his brother obviously aren't getting along at this point. And the dispute over these riches has advanced to the point where this younger brother feels the need to get outside help. And oh, how many families have been divided 
over the settling of the family estate? How many brothers and sisters are so angry that they will not even speak to one another or cross the same edge of town as the others live because they are at war over the possessions or the money that belong to their parents? Greed causes us to burn in our hearts for the possessions of others. And it will cause us to learn how to deceive our neighbors and our co-workers and even our own family members. It will cause us to look upon our fellow man, a precious soul for whom Jesus died, as nothing more than a competitor for the treasure that we feel rightfully belongs to us. Pastor Kent Hughes records the following story relayed by his college English professor. She and her five sisters had grown up in a small Midwestern town during the Depression where her father, despite the difficulties of the time, rose to become a successful banker. She had gone off to a university, but her sisters stayed close to home, married and settled down. She likewise married and taught on the West Coast. When her aging father died... She and her husband hurried home for the funeral. As they comforted her poor mother, they noticed in mute amazement that everything in the house had been tagged by the other sisters with their names. This is Judy's. This is Margaret's. This is Annie's. She and her husband were appalled, but they said nothing. Well, the table was set and dinner was served amidst mounting tension and awkward conversation. And there were long periods of awkward silence. Then the professor's husband stood, stepped behind the mother's chair and said, everyone's tagged what they want. We're placing our tag on what we want. And then he placed his hands on their poor mother's shoulders. Greed is always ugly. It will divide friends and families. And so I ask you, are there any relationships that you need to restore because of your greed? Are you ranking riches over relationships? Paul tells us that we ought to rather be wrong than to go about as those who have the eternal hope of Christ bickering with our brothers and sisters in Christ over some temporary possession. And yes, greed has gotten past your guard if you are ranking riches over relationships. But secondly, greed has gotten past your guard if you are pursuing possessions as life's purpose. Jesus gives us a helpful way of thinking through what true and lasting wealth looks like in verse 15. That's where he, after telling the crowd to be on their guard against every form of greed, he says these words, For not not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You see, true life isn't found in the stuff that we accumulate. Not even when one has an abundance of things will our life truly find lasting purpose. Because God hasn't designed our purpose to be wrapped up in pursuing life's possessions. Even if this man who had yelled out to Jesus were to get the entirety of his father's estate to himself, that would not buy him life. And here before him stood the author of life, the one who had come to give life and to give it abundantly. And this man was too wrapped up in thinking about the earthly things to see that the very Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had come to ransom all of mankind was standing in his very Midst. And that's a danger for all of us, my friends. That we get so wrapped up in the pursuit of the things that we miss the one that provides for us something that lasts beyond the things. Jesus has come to give you something greater than what you can put into your bank account. He's come to give you something greater than what you can put into your garage or into your house or what you can leave to your kids. Jesus has come to give you life. Don't sell yourself short pursuing the things which will pass away in the blink of an eye. As the parable shows, true life 
comes from God. And that's not a message that our society is familiar with. All around us are the messages that the good life is a matter of possessing the right things. Capitalism and the marketing departments of practically every company that functions under its umbrella seek to convince each of us that if we don't have a certain set of possessions which are customized to our situation in life, we don't have real life. That's what the marketers want us to believe. So they convince us that we need the next big thing, that that next big thing is just the right thing for us. But when we get enough income and we advance to the next bracket, we simply become the target of a new ad campaign that tells us we haven't successfully obtained what would ultimately be the source of good life for us after all. And so many individuals have been burned by the emptiness of treasures that have been obtained. They should have started with the Bible and they would have realized that not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Because the things you can buy will never provide you with true life. Only our God can give you true life. But he does so freely by grace through faith. It's free from our perspective at least. This opportunity to be saved cost our God a great price as he sent his only son to die on our behalf on the cross. But this gift comes to us freely and simply by faith as we entrust our lives to the resurrected one as our Lord and our Savior. But oh, how many individuals are wrapped up in seeking after the material goods as a hope of a promise of true life. Mark Twain once defined civilization as a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Someone else has said, half the world is unhappy because it doesn't have the things that are making the other half unhappy. Tony Evans says it this way, there are the haves and the have-nots, and then there are the have-not-paid-for-what-you-haves. If you are content to set your life's purpose on accumulating possessions, then you will find that you are never satisfied. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. And someone once asked him, how much money is enough? His answer was simply, one dollar more. That's what greed does. It produces us in this mentality. Always just a little bit more. Just a little bit more and I'll be happy. Let me just get over that one little hurdle and I'll be there. But it becomes an endless race for us where hurdle after hurdle is on the horizon. Greed makes the pursuit of possessions an endless pursuit. Now being wealthy and having riches are not inherently wrong in and of themselves. Money can be a great good if it's used within the parameters of godly living. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the examples of so many wealthy individuals in the Bible, such as Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Esther and Lydia, who enjoyed God's blessings, but who were also godly individuals. But toward outsiders, these were generous individuals who lived in the light of eternity. And if we want to be rich toward God, then we need to be careful to distinguish between the world's perspective and God's perspective when it comes to our wealth. God's perspective won't allow us to pursue possessions as life's purpose. King Solomon was probably the wealthiest man who ever lived in Bible times, and yet he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Paul likewise writes to Timothy, his young disciple, saying, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus has already shown us in Luke's gospel, Luke 9, 25, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself. That's the predicament of the man in the passage that we see here today in this parable. And so I hope you're taking this danger to heart. Take inventory 
of your own passions and your own pursuits. Ask yourself the question, am I being driven by greed? Pastor Stephen Cole, in his sermon on this passage, lays out a helpful test for greed that I want to share with you. Do you want to really know if you're greedy? Well, let me share with you Pastor Cole's five questions that you should be asking yourself. Here's the first one. Do my thoughts often run after the material things more than after God himself? If I'm often thinking about that new car or that nicer house or that better computer, I am seldom thinking about how I can know God better and I am tainted by grief. Second question, do I ever compromise godly character in the pursuit of material gain? If I sometimes cheat or lie or steal to get ahead financially or to avoid loss, I am being greedy. If I am willing to shred relationships or to take advantage of another person for financial gain, I am being greedy. If I care more about making money than about being a witness for Jesus Christ, I am being greedy. Third question, do I enjoy material things more than I enjoy knowing God? If my happiness soars when I get a new car, but I am bored by the things of God, then I am greedy. If I rejoice when I win a raffle or a door prize, but I yawn when I hear about a soul being saved, I am greedy. Fourthly, how do I respond when I lose material things? When the stock market drops, do I fall apart emotionally? If I get robbed or lose some or all of my things in the fire, does it devastate me beyond repair? If losing possessions wipes us out, then we're probably too attached to the world and its goods. Fifthly, what would I do if I suddenly came into a fortune? What if a distant relative died and left you a large inheritance? Would your first thought be, now I can get that better house or that better car or that boat? Now I can take that trip around the world that I've always wanted to take? Or would you think, now I can support dozens of missionaries, thousands of people can hear about Christ because he has given me the funds to invest in the spread of his kingdom. Yes, greed has gotten past your guard if you are pursuing possessions as life's purpose. That's the second way to know if greed has gotten past your guard. Here's the third. Greed has gotten past your guard if you are sitting the steward in the seat of the sovereign. Jesus gives us a parable starting in verse 16 to illustrate the dangers of greed. A parable is just a simply, it's a down-to-earth sort of story that conveys to us heavenly truths. And this story that, that Jesus gives is of a man who owned a farm. And it's a farm that's a very successful enterprise. How do we know that? Well, Jesus says in verse 16, the land of a rich man was very productive. Not only was he already rich, but his land is very productive. This farm is really having a successful time of growth. Now, notice how Jesus describes what's going on. He doesn't say that the man was very productive. He says that the land was very productive. Now, surely this man's work made a difference. But apart from God's creative work, this man wouldn't have had the opportunity to sow his first seed. If God had not created the heavens and the earth, this man would not have the plot of ground to sow his seed into. The seed and the land, the abundance of produce, these were all God's. It all belonged to him. This man was simply given stewardship over these things. But he made a grave mistake. Rather than seeing himself as a steward, he began to see himself as the sovereign one. He began seeing himself as the one who had command over this situation. And so his greed convinced him that he was in charge of this bountiful produce and that he was able to do with it whatever he liked. We see that in the way that he talks to himself about what to do in light of the fact that he's got a successful farm, this bumper crop that is growing so richly. Six times, six times he uses the pronoun I to describe his actions in this moment. The man says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. 
Additionally, the word my appears in this passage five times. This man speaks of my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, and my soul. And that's what greed does to us. It puts the focus on ourselves. But none of these things truly belong to ourselves. We're merely stewards of that which belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Don't get the mentality, friends, that those possessions which you have at home are yours to do with whatever you wish. It's all God's. It all belongs to Him. And ultimately, we must be submitting our will to His. We must be seeking His pleasure rather than purely our own. If you're a follower of Christ, the ante is even higher. For as Paul wrote to the Romans, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies, he says. So the biggest issue seems to be that the man asked himself what he should do with his wealth rather than asking God how he could wisely invest in his work. To do so would be a simple matter of prioritizing for God's work what was rightfully a gift from his hand. But instead, this greedy man decided that he would be his own Lord. He decided he would be his own sovereign. And so he asks himself in verse 17, what shall I do? And he proudly proclaims, this is what I will do. He does not ask, Lord, what would you have me to do? And I ask, how about you? Are there plans in your life that you are not submitting to the sovereign God of all things? You see, our money and our possessions are all tainted. Taint yours and taint mine. Tis all his. And if you can't get past this greed that's gotten into your life. And my friends, you need a reconfiguration. You need a checkup. You can know greed has gotten past your guard if you are sitting in the steward. Sitting the steward in the seat of the sovereign. That's the third way you can know. Here's the fourth. Greed has gotten past your guard if you're neglecting the eternal life for earthly leisure. In verse 19, we find that the man has ultimately been gunning for something. When his new, bigger barns are full, he has an intention to live a life of leisure for many years. So he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And I got to warn you folks here, Jesus is wrecking our mentality about retirement in America in these verses. You better be careful because if if you're thinking that retirement for you is going to be a time to check out of everything and to eat and drink and to enjoy the pleasures of life, that Jesus is about to wreck your idea of retirement. What this man describes sounds a lot like the American ideal of what retirement should be like. Because this is the closest parallel to the idea of retirement in the Bible. Now, of course, the Bible recognizes aging and slowing down, but retiring to a life of self-indulgence finds no favor with God. A retirement that lives for oneself is unbiblical and immoral. Here's what seminary president and one of my favorite Christian thinkers named Albert Muller has written about the idea of retirement. He says, The Bible dignifies both labor and age. But the modern American ideal of retirement is nowhere to be found in scriptures. Instead, lives of useful service to the kingdom of Christ are the expectation all the way to the grave. The idea for Christians, the ideal for Christians should be redeployment even after employment. There is so much kingdom work to be done and older believers are desperately needed in this great task. There are missionaries to be assisted ministries to be engaged, young couples to be counseled, boys without fathers to be mentored, and wisdom and experience to be shared. The possibilities for Christian redeployment are endless. There is room in the Christian life for leisure, but not for a life devoted to leisure. 
As long as we have the strength and the ability to serve, we are workers needed in Christ's kingdom. So I hope we take this message to heart. And we think, I have a good friend who describes it this way. He says, I'm not retired, I'm just retreaded. I hope we have this sort of mentality that ultimately, though we may have the privilege of being able to step away from the workforce, our work for the one whom we ultimately serve is not over until we see him face to face. And the rich man of this parable gave consideration to what to do with this wealth, but he left out one critical factor. He didn't consider his eternity. He had his bases covered for many years on earth, but he did not have his bases covered for eternal years in heaven. He had no guarantee that even the goods that he had acclaimed here on earth would last. His barns could have been hit by lightning and burned to the ground before morning. Thieves or an invading army could have taken it all from him in the dark of the night. Rats could have eaten and polluted his storehouses. Nothing in this life was guaranteed for this man. And for you, my friends, I tell you the same. Nothing in this life is guaranteed for you except death. Should the Lord himself not come before that time arrives for you. The fool thinks about life, but it doesn't include God and judgment and eternity in his thoughts. And God has caused all of those temporary things to come crashing down for that man in that night, according to this parable. That man had prepared for an empty satisfaction. He neglected eternal life so that he could enjoy an easy leisure. Many years ago, Pastor A.V. Hill was invited to speak to a suburban church in a southern city in the United States. And in the introduction to his message, Pastor Hill commented on the difference between the wealthy suburb where this church was located and the poor urban area where he ministered on a regular basis. And he, and he described to the people, he said, you know what, I know what's missing. You folks don't have any graffiti anywhere. So I'd like to volunteer to provide some graffiti for you. I'll get a bucket of paint and I'll walk through your neighborhoods writing this one word on your million dollar homes and your expensive European cars. Temporary. That's it. Temporary. None of it will last. And the word that's translated required of you as Ultimately, God tells this one who has built up his barns and said, let me eat, drink, and be happy. As he calls him forth and says, your own life will be required of you. That word could be translated as required back. It's a word that was often used to describe how individuals were called in that they might repay a loan that had been given to them. And ultimately, we must recognize that God owns our lives. He merely loans our earthly existence to us at any time he could call in his loan and so i ask you are you ready are you ready to give an answer when he calls you on that day we must learn to view our lives as a loan from god to be due to him return to him at our death if christ were to come to you today would he say to you like he said to that thief there next to him on the cross who said lord remember me when you come into your kingdom would he say to you Today you will be with me in paradise. Or would he say to you what what he says to this one who says, let me enjoy all things to myself. As he says, this very night, your soul is required of you. Focus on living for what's ahead rather than what you're leaving behind. Otherwise, someone else, else will own what you have prepared, Jesus says here. Yes, greed has gotten past your guard if you're neglecting eternal life for er easy leisure. That's the fourth way you can know that greed has gotten past your guard. Here's the final one. Greed has gotten past your guard if you are tallying treasures with no godly generosity. Jesus summarizes his teaching on greed in verse 21 with these words. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God friends 
You must be rich towards God. Is it a sin to be wealthy? No. But it is a sin to be greedy. And greed causes us to only be generous toward ourselves and not toward God. We must be careful not to tally treasures with no godly generosity. Stealing from God, as this man has done, is ultimately like robbing the local police station. It's not a wise thing to do. He owns it all. He has the judgment to himself. And when we take the things which he has entrusted to us and use them for our own selfish gain, my friends, we are missing his mark. It certainly did not end well for the man in this parable who did this very thing. And it won't end well for you either if greed is the taint of your life. And so I ask you, are you rich towards God? Do you exercise godly generosity toward him? Ultimately, it's a matter of who are we serving and, and, and what are we using to serve him? Are my life and my possessions and my wealth ultimately in service to him? Or am I just collecting these things for myself? Again, there's nothing wrong with wealth in a biblical perspective. But what is wrong is when we take the things which God has entrusted to us and use them only for ourselves rather than seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We must learn to use one in the service of the other. We must learn to use our wealth and our possessions in the servant of God Almighty. I heard of a man one day who was lost in the desert without water. But he saw an old shack. He was dying of thirst, and he didn't have much longer, so he painfully made his way to that shack. And inside the shack, he was delighted to find that there was a little jar of crystal clear water that was set on the floor next to a pump. Now, he was flooded with relief, and he walked over to the jar so that he might quench his overbearing thirst. But as he did, he reached down to pick up the jar of water, and he noticed that there was a sign right next to it and the sign said use this water to prime the pump out back when you're satisfied refill it and leave it for the next person who will pass this way so he found himself on the horns of a dilemma because he was so very thirsty you know what if he followed the directions of this sign and there was no water in the well what if he primed the pump and he and he lost the only opportunity he had to quench this near death sort of thirst so he had to make a decision to either serve himself now or to invest and to take the chance that deep down there really was so much more and you know ultimately when we talk about giving to god we're talking about a method of priming the pump of God's blessings in the life of a believer. You have a choice. You can either take the little that God has given you now and you can consume it for yourself or you can use it to prime something that's got so much more. It all boils down to this, though. Do you really believe that there is so much more available there under the ground? Do you really believe that if you take that little bit that God's entrusted to you now and yield it to his control, if you really live a life of godly generosity, that he holds the deepest of wells that can provide the resources for all of your needs? Because if we truly believe those things, then living for God and yielding our possessions to him will be a delight for us because we can know that we have a good God who will take good care of us and so I ask you are you taking what God's given in your life and using it for yourself are you priming the pump providing a path for others to be blessed and trusting in God to provide for you a way to thrive as well 
Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Father, this message is a challenge. I'm sure it's been a challenge for any culture at any part of human history, but God, it's especially a challenge for ours, I would believe. Because this passage, Jesus' teaching, slaps us in the face when we think about our own pursuit and what our own culture and our own society and our own hearts have taught us we ought to be seeking after. God, I pray you just help us to have the faith to know there's so much more available than just these little things that we cling to here on earth. That the greatest mansion we could have here on earth or the greatest car, the greatest job or the greatest position of authority is nothing compared to what you have in store for those who are in Christ. So God, help us not to piddle around with the little cups of water here on earth, but help us to mine deep in our trust in you, to mine your wells knowing, God, that you've got great things in store for us. God, help us to be detached from greed. Help us to be on guard. God, drive us by the teaching of Christ's word and the lives that are obedience here. Father, I know that's a need for each of us. So help us to take inventory on this day. Help us to be sure that we are on our guard, that greed has not made it past our guard. And Father, if there's some decision that any of us needs to make, if there are some decisions that all of us need to make, God, I pray that you would compel by the power of your spirit the decisions to be made in this moment. For some, oh Lord, it may be a matter of restoring relationships. God, you might have, through your word here, this mentality that our relationships being torn or our own selfishness is a very vile thing. And God, if that's a desire that you placed in the hearts of those who've gathered here, they are at enmity with their brother or their sister or others in their lives because of greed. God, I pray you'd help to break that barrier down to cause us to, to take true inventory of our hearts, to turn away from our greed and to live generously toward others. God, it may, be, it may be a need of an individual who needs to come to true faith in Christ, who, who has ultimately been saying, I'm, I don't want to let go of these little things I've got in my life. I feel like if I, if I give my life to Jesus, he's going to lead me away from these things. But God, I pray you'd help us to understand that you've got so much more in store, that you would compel that one who is wandering from you, holding to his own possessions or her own possessions, to come to you for true life. Father, whatever the need may be, as we share in these final moments of song, I just pray you'd open our hearts to truly worship you in song, open our lives to be available and transparent to you. Open us, O oh Lord, to be ready to respond to whatever your need may be. And if there is one who needs to come to Christ, I pray you'd help them to know the well is deep, the grace is rich, forgiveness is free, Jesus has paid it all. May we rejoice in these things as we see you working in the hearts of your people. Prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.